our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled under as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't int misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Thanks, buddy. Do you want to preach it? No. Oh, I might. Next week. I heard her say, did y'all hear her say next week? Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you for this room. Thank you for these people. Thank you that... Uh, Week after week, you show up here. I'm always amazed. I'm always grateful. And so I just pray in these minutes together that um, as we look at something familiar, you'll give us fresh eyes. I pray, um, I pray for the vision to be able to see what you call the good life, what you um, have laid out for us as good. And so I thank you. Um, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that uh, you set aside time that we can learn more of ourselves and more um, of you. So in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, good morning. It's good to see you. You survived the flood and the snow. And I was telling someone, someone today told me it's supposed to be 60 today. Is that true? This is nuts. My body, I have this cough. My body doesn't know what to do. Does yours? It's like... So if I cough, I'm so sorry. Johnny will be on it. He'll mute me maybe so you don't have to listen to um, a barking cough from a very short person. It's, it's, an, it's a marvel, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> I have a couple of things before we get started. Um, I was in Texas last week. Uh, I was not at the casinos like Chad told you. Thanks, Chad. Um, I was at a church conference, which is the opposite of casinos, sort of. Um, but it was great. Um, <laughs> it, huh? 
Oh, it was, I thought you were motioning to me. It was great. Uh, what happened is the, the Lily Foundation gave the vineyard, like the Big V Vineyard. Um, you may think that the vineyard is just like a couple churches in East Tennessee, but we're actually an association of churches all over the world. Um, and so the Vineyard USA, uh, all the churches in America, the Lily Foundation gave them a million dollars, and they said just use it. The only thing you can use it for is just to take care of pastors. So I got to go to Texas and be loved on for a weekend, and it starts a two-year process where um, there's just people investing in me and making sure that I don't go crazy for you. So thank you, Lily Foundation. They've got their work cut out for them. Um, So that was great. Um, Another thing I want to say is uh, we don't talk about money a whole super lot. We we should probably talk about it more. I always use the excuse that I'm new at this and I don't know how to, um, but now it's been five years. Like it's probably time to learn how to do stuff. But um, I do think sometimes when I talk about money, it's me standing in front of you saying like, help, we need more. Um, But I I don't want to just do that. And so I just want to say, I don't know if this is awkward. I hope not. I just want to say this. Uh, Last month was one of the best months we have had financially at the Vineyard, like since the beginning. Yes. So thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for investing in this place, in these people. And I'm just so grateful. And I feel like when we do good, we should celebrate it. And so I'm celebrating you, and I'm so grateful for you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If we keep doing that, maybe we can afford the building we all want. You know, let's keep, don't, don't give up in February because January is good. Um, so, okay, we'll get started. Um, we are in week two of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Chad wasn't kidding last week. Chad preached last week. If you missed that sermon, you should go back and podcast it. I don't really say that very often. It was so good. I can say it because it wasn't me. Um, it was so good. So go back and podcast it. Um, but Chad wasn't kidding. Um, I came to him a couple of months ago and I was like, we should do a series on the Sermon on the Mount. That would be awesome. And he looked at me and he was like, are you crazy? Like, who does a sermon series on the greatest sermon ever preached? Why would we do that? And um, then Chad did what Chad always does, which is he goes and he takes time to process it and pray about it. And then this is always Chad. He comes back and he is like in for whatever. It's, the, it's what makes working with him so much fun. Is he's like, I'm in. What do you want to do? So he comes back and he's like, I'm in. We should do this. And I was like, are you crazy? Who would do a sermon series on the best sermon ever preached? Like, what are we going to do? Read it and say, you should, you should live that life. It would be great, you know. Like, what are we going to do? So, anyway, um, I don't know what kind of Looney Tunes pick to do this. These kind of Looney Tunes. That's who picks to do this. So, this is who you have leading you. We're crazy people. Um, so, uh, the text Chad did last week and the one that Dottie read for us today, outside of the Lord's Prayer, there's some of the most famous uh, words of Jesus ever spoken ever. If you uh, grew up around the church or in the church, you, they're probably really familiar to you. You, you may be saying them as a kid, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, hide it under a bushel. No, I don't know what a bushel is. I think it's a, is it a basket in the song? Okay, in my mind as a kid, it was a bushel of like corn or wheat, and then I was like, that's a fire hazard, and I got really confused by it. So, um, so it, it probably is something that's familiar. Even if um, you're just like dipping your toe in uh, to the church, this still might be a kind of familiar thing, especially if you um, grew up in the South because we put this thing on like coffee mugs and God help us salt shakers. 
Give me the salt of the earth. Um, and so you've probably seen it in some way. And, and just sort of a side note, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you don't call yourself a Christian, um, you are so welcome in this room. Uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about what we think Jesus says uh, the good life is. Like what, what Jesus, his like um, description of what a, a good life would be. And so um, to me, that seems like a really good time to be here on your own volition or being drugged by your family members. So welcome. Um, But uh, so to get started, I want to read a quote today from a Stoic philosopher. Um, So this guy, his name is Seneca the Younger. He would have been writing around the same time as Jesus. But uh, the Stoic philosophers, they were Roman philosophers or if you're a history buff, more specifically Hellenistic philosophers. So these aren't um, like Jewish people or people associated with God at all. These are philosophers uh, for Rome. And so uh, another side note, if we think that there is nothing good or true said outside of church or the Bible, we're foolish because there are good and true things that we can apply all over the world. And so here's what the philosopher Seneca says, and he's talking about things that are familiar to us, uh, reading and talking through things that Um, are familiar. He says this, he says, people say, what good does it do to point out the obvious? A great deal of good, for sometimes we know facts without paying attention to them. The mind often tries not to notice even that which lies before our eyes. And I love this, this is what he says. He says, we must therefore force upon it knowledge of things that are perfectly well known. We must therefore force upon our minds knowledge of things that are perfectly well known. That's what I'm asking us to do today, to force upon our minds the knowledge of things that are perfectly uh, well known. Basically what he's saying is just because you know what it says doesn't mean you know all of it. Doesn't mean you've unpacked all of its layers. It's like how uh, words sometimes sound and mean something for your entire life until a certain moment. And it's like you hear the same words in this new fresh way or this new and deeper way. Um, For example, uh, when I was growing up, I told every boyfriend I ever had that I loved them always, no matter what. Um, And it started in the eighth grade. I had this boyfriend named Taylor. And by boyfriend, I, of course, mean it was a boy I talked to on the phone a couple times a week and then avoided, like, the plague at school because, dear God, we can't look at each other at school. You know, this was a phone relationship. And so uh, we would talk on the phone a couple nights a week. And um, we were on the phone one night, and um, we're getting off the phone, and he says, well, good night. And he said, well, actually, we've been dating two weeks. Again, by dating, I mean talking on the phone, never speaking in real life or going on any dates zero. We've been dating for two weeks, and my sister's in high school, and she says that when you've been dating somebody for two weeks, you should start saying I love you when you hang up on the phone. And I thought that made all the sense in the world. So I did. I remember my dad hearing me say I love you, and he was like, what? And I was like, two weeks, man. It's serious. Haven't spoken in person yet, but love, you know, and so I just really took that with me, and I, I just, I told everybody I loved them, and, um, and so it was, there were words that meant something, but then, uh, many years later, when Daniel told me he loved me for the first time, which, for the record, he said, I love you so much, and then quickly canceled it out by saying, I mean, I like you so much, to which I said, you have to pick one, (laughs) to which he said, the first one, To which I said, you have to say it again. You must say it again. 
And so Daniel, the love of my life, looks me in the eyes and says, I love you so much. Well, those words take on this new, what was known became like it was all the magic of the unknown. A phrase I had known all of my life took on new legs, new knowledge of this perfectly known thing. It's like um, when you know the, the pain of being an outcast and someone says, come sit here or would you want to go and these, these words that you've heard all of your life somehow are like imputed with something new, something fresh, something perfectly uh, known takes on the magic and the wonder of newness. Um, another example of is like I said the word mom more than any name for all of my life. But then the first time a kid looked at me, that, that, that was mine, and said, mom, it's like the most familiar word takes on um, all of this newness, all of this magic, all of this wonder. And so that's my hope for us today as we look um, at, at these words, that, that as we look at salt and light, that the familiar would take on the curiosity and the wonder of something unknown. And so we'll just take a couple of observations about each of them. So uh, we'll start with some observations about salt. Jesus says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Um, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is truly um, so brilliant. It is the most brilliant and ahead of its time uh, talk on ethics and morality ever given. Um, uh, most good government came uh, out of the inspiration of this sermon. Chad said last week that even for folks outside of this uh, faith, people like Gandhi and Richard Dawkins, they, they have lauded, this sermon has been lauded throughout time for its moral and ethical brilliance. It is truly groundbreaking. It is a groundbreaking look at what it means to fill the world with all of the best stuff, to look at what Jesus calls the good life. And so, uh, like any good preacher or poet or prophet, what Jesus is saying here about salt, it's truly like layer upon layer. It's not just uh, what's on the surface, although um, for our first observation, that's what we'll look at. The, exactly what we read, kind of layer one of salt. Jesus says, you are the salt of the world. You are full of flavor. And so for us, uh, the primary use of salt in our lives is flavor, Right? It's why we use it. Um, and that would have absolutely been true in the first century. I think it's, not, it, it, it's really reasonable for us to conclude that Jesus saying, um, following me in this world means that I am intentional about taste. And I'm intentional about how you taste. Salt, um, it's really the best example we have of the thing that draws out the best taste in something, no matter what you add it to. Do you know what the best thing about green beans is? Salt. Like we want it to be green beans, but it's salt, right? It's salt. Salt, it brings out the best in everything, even sweet things. Like salt makes uh, sweet things taste sweeter, like kettle corn or salted caramel. Uh, my friend Rodney says that uh, the, private, the Kroger Private Selection salted caramel ice cream is the best, and I quote, the best thing he's ever put in his mouth, ever. You want to know why? Salt. Because there's salt in it, because salt brings out all of the best stuff in whatever it's in. It's like Jesus is saying that the role of the Christian in the world is supposed to be like salt, bringing out the best in whatever is around it. Jesus is saying uh, that the good life means that we exist to bring out the best in one another. That we exist to bring out the best in our communities, and our schools, and our cities. 
And yet one of the top complaints about Christians is exactly the opposite, right? That instead of bringing out the good things and the flavors everywhere all over the world, we are seen as judgmental and unhelpful and unwelcoming and toxic. And it isn't a crazy observation. Ever been on Facebook? Oh, Lord, Christ have mercy. (laughs) But the truth is that isn't what we're meant for. The church, the followers of Jesus, we're meant to be the salt of the world, something that brings out the very best from everything uh, that it touches, something that draws in rather than drawing lines all the way around. And our flavor, it's, it's things like humility and grace and service and hope and peace and generosity and hospitality and all of the other best things of the world. That's what we were meant to taste like in, in the kingdom of God, flavor, flavor is wildly important. Um, but I think when Jesus talks about salt, I think there's another layer. Really, there's many more layers that we don't have time for. But another layer I want to look at for our second observation is, is this. Um, in the first century, the primary use of salt would not have been flavoring. The primary use of salt um, would have been in uh, pres- preservation. And so it would have been used to protect meat from the elements of destruction all the way around it. So um, if you're a food history nerd, uh, which I think there's two of us here this morning, but um, in the mid-third century B.C., so uh, 250 years before Jesus was born, or 280 years before this sermon was preached, um, there was a man named Cato the Elder, and Cato the Elder, he was um, like a wise man, and he uh, was a military leader and a political, like a powerful political leader, Um, but the important thing about him is that he wrote tons of stuff down. So our stuff from 3rd century BC, um, a lot of what we have of information about that culture comes from Cato the Elder. Um, But what's important for us today is that he wrote a farming manual, which was essentially like a recipe book of recipes of uh, his, like his ancestors. And in this manual, um, he has a recipe for what to do with pig's legs. And And he has this recipe that honestly we still use today. Like, it's the same thing that we do today. Uh, for, and, and the recipe says that you're supposed to cover a pig's legs with salt and that you would cure them in a container for 15 days before hanging them outside, smoking them, and then you go to Buddy's. Just kidding. That part's not in there. Johnny would think that Buddy's would be in there. I would disagree. Um, so uh, 280 years before the Sermon on the Mount is the first known record of salt as preservation. Like, we have other ways of preserving meat now, but this is still something that we do today. I worked at Blackberry Farm in college, and I remember Alan Benton coming and um, covering the slab of bacon and salt. He actually uses salt and brown sugar. Um, but he would cover it with, like, your heart hurt watching how much salt was on um, this slab of already bacon. And, and, and it's, he did it in order to cure it and in order to preserve it. In Jesus' day, this was the the mode of preservation. This is how meat was preserved. And here's why. This is how it works. Um, When you cover something with salt, uh, salt removes the water from whatever food it covers in order to protect it from things like mold or yeast or bacteria or um, any of the things that might uh, threaten threaten for the meat to go bad. Um, Salt, it can remove moisture from just about anything. The more salt you put, the less moisture has access to whatever you're putting 
on it. So what salt does is it literally protects and penetrates the food uh, to work to remove the source of what might eventually destroy it. Is this making sense? It's so brilliant, right? It's so brilliant. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, uses a sermon illustration that holds up today, a brilliant one. He says, you are the salt of the earth, protectors of the earth from all that threatens to destroy it. He's saying the good life means follow me as I work to keep the world from going bad. Follow me as I protect and infiltrate all of the darkness and all of the evil in this world. Join me in protecting this world and all of its people from what has the potential to destroy it. I think it is one of the most brilliant and enlightening and empowering things that Jesus ever said to us. Follow me in the preservation and the protection of this world. And that means a lot for us. It means that for people who follow Jesus, it means that we don't get to live our lives as bad meat. And we don't get to live our lives as if it's okay for there to be bad meat. We don't get to live as if the world has gone bad and that that's the end of the story, nothing else. Because we, as the church, are the plan of preservation. We're the salt. We, the church, have been empowered and commissioned by Jesus to follow him as he puts things back to right. And so um, if we, uh, as Jesus followers, are to look into the world and see all of its problems and then don't look at ourselves as if we're empowered to be part of the solution, then I think we've missed what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, this is the good life. This is what the good life looks like. You are the salt. You are how I'm infiltrating the world with hope and healing and peace and grace and generosity and all of the best things in order to protect the world from all of the destructive things. This is what I made you for. He's not saying that the world will never go bad. What he's saying is that if things are going to go bad in the world, good news, there's salt. If things are going to go bad in your world, good news, you're the salt. That's what he's saying. John Stott is a Christian theologian, and he says it like this. I think this is good. He says, one can hardly blame unsalted meat for going bad. It cannot do anything else. The real question to ask is, where's the salt? Where's the salt? Okay, I've talked way too long about salt. Um, I want to take just a minute and talk about light. Um, uh, Verse 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. I have a couple observations about light. Um, The first is that there's something so, like, mesmerizing about light, right? It's like watching moths to a flame or um, a cat with a laser. You ever YouTubed those? (laughs) Sorry, I choked on my own laughter. Um, 
If you've ever walked into or from the auditorium to the bathrooms before 10 o'clock, um, you know the mesmerizing light. Like I walked out one time and I'm like, oh my gosh, this light is so blinding. And sweet Ben Yoder said, it's the joy of the Lord. And I was like, oh, that's what that feels like. You know? it's like but it's just, it's so, it's so mesmerizing. Light is mesmerizing. And just like salt, it's not something that we can just like will into being in our lives. Chad, last week when he was talking about the, the Beatitudes, he used the words prescriptive and descriptive. Um, and and, and if, so if you went home last week and you made a list of things you need to do in order to like be loved by God or to make God happy or to be in God's kingdom, then you might have missed what the sermon actually said. That would be a prescriptive quote or a prescriptive approach to this. But what we think that this sermon is, is Jesus is describing something more than he's prescribing something. He's not saying you have to do these things in order to be pleased by me. The verses in Matthew 5, um, they're descriptive. Jesus is describing what the kingdom of God looks like, what he's forming us to be. And so Jesus, I think it's important to note this, Jesus doesn't say in these verses, go be salt and go be light. That's prescriptive. What Jesus says is you are salt and you are light. This is what I'm inviting you into. You can't will it into being. You can't fake it into being. You can't white knuckle it into being. It's just who you are and it's who I'm making you to be. I'm setting you free in order to become salt and light in the world. Mesmerizing light. It is formational work, kingdom work at the hand of a king. Uh, so years ago, uh, a few years ago, Daniel and I went to New York City to meet up with some buddies that live in London. And so we all met up in New York. And, um, and so we walk into this bar to meet our friends. And it's been, I, I think it had been like two years since we had all been in the same room. Like some of us had seen some of us, but uh, two years since we had all been in the same room. And so we're like going nuts. Like we're hugging and laughing and we're the kind of people in the place that haven't realized anyone else is in the place. You know the people. You know, and so, I mean, it's like, oh, my gosh, you're here. I mean, I can't, I, like, wish I was cooler, but I'm, I'm just like, I really was doing that. Like, oh, my gosh, you're here. You know, like, it's obnoxious. So, anyway, I'm doing all that. And at some point, I look over, and my friend Piers, friends, Piers and Adam, are talking to each other, and they're looking at me, and they're pointing, and they're laughing. And it's like, what? You know, like, you know how it feels when someone is looking at you and they're pointing and they're laughing. And I'm pretty sure pointing is, like, really bad and British. And so I'm, like, I'm super self-conscious about this. And then they just keep, so I'm like, well, I'm not going to let it ruin my fun. And so I go back to my, like, blah, 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 blah. and um, is, is there a video of the sermon? Hopefully not, so no one ever has to see me do that again. Um, so I'm like going crazy, and then I look over, and they're doing it again. Like, they just keep doing it, and they keep pointing at me, and they keep laughing at me, and it's so weird. And so eventually, um, in, in the night, I end up sitting next to Piers. It's, you know it's a good night when you're at a table that starts to become kind of like musical chairs. Like, someone goes up to get food or drinks for everyone, and you just rotate into their seat. And so that's what's happening. So I end up next to Piers. And um, he leans over and he, and he says, um, did you notice us pointing and laughing at you? And I was like, yes, I did. And he said, do you want to know why? And I was like, more than anything. Like, it's all I can think about. Yes, I want to know why. And then he looks at me with the cutest British accent. I'm not going to try it because I'm too sick. to. I'm really good at British accents except when I'm sick. Um, he looks at me with the cutest British accent. And he says, it's because of your face. And I was like, 
what? What? And he said, your face. Because of your face. And I was like, no, I didn't mishear you. What do you mean my face? And he was like, that's why we were pointing and laughing. It was your face. I'm like, what in the world? He says, we were talking about how much... (laughs) This is a quote. We were talking about how much we love your face, but we really just can't pinpoint why. (laughs) Dear God, it's like all of my biggest fears being said out loud. You know, like, it's awful. And then for a few minutes, he tries to explain to me why this is a compliment. And it's like, okay, thank you. Um, At another point in the evening during the musical chairs, I end up next to my other friend, Adam, and I have a very similar conversation with Adam, almost the exact same one, which is humiliation round number two. And, um, but Adam does something different. He asked me this. He says, what's so different about your face and other people's faces? Why is yours so light? And I was like, oh, and I had no answer. Legitimately, the only thing I knew to say was, Jesus? And Adam, who is precious to me, he's uh, an atheist, and he looks at me and he was like, I thought you might say something like that. <laughs> light, light, it's mesmerizing. I'm not saying my face is mesmerizing. You just saw me make crazy ones. Um, but light draws people in, right? Darkness isn't, some of us are crazy and um, just don't want to be scared of the dark, but darkness isn't a draw. Light draws people in. And Jesus is saying, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You are the ones who are supposed to be, get, or, or, or you get the freedom to give light to everyone, to light up a room, to show up everywhere, even in the darkest corners and spaces of this world. And Jesus uh, makes the distinction that our job isn't to white-knuckle the light into being. Our job as light is to just quit putting a basket on it, right? To just quit putting a basket on it. It's not lost on me that I can tell you a story like that where my friends are laughing at my face and because of Jesus, but at the same time wonder if, like, my kids would say the same thing about my face or the people I encounter day in and day out would agree about my face. I have, am forever in the habit of putting a basket over me. I'm forever in the habit of hiding under a basket. Okay, one last observation before we end up uh, about salt and light. I think uh, that Jesus is saying that this kind of living, the good kind of living, is uh, communal. It's one of the most striking things about the kingdom of God and this sermon, uh, that, that it's never a one-person thing. That God's plan to put the world back together isn't a one-person plan. It is relational through and through and through and through. It comes out of the relationship of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And and, and it's birthed communally and it's activated uh, communally. If you uh, go back to the original language for the word you that Jesus uses here, it is essentially you all or y'all. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like Jesus had to have a little East Tennessee in him, right? In, again, in Israel. Um, But what he's saying is, y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. You all, all are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Uh, he's, He's distinct. He doesn't say light is like a house on a hill when he talks about it. He says it's an entire city, a city on a hilltop. 
Salt and light, they're communal. It's something we do together and grow together and build together and solve together and dream and follow and risk and rescue together. It means that together we've been empowered uh, to protect and to bring out and to create and to support good culture in our world. It means that together uh, we learn how to have eyes to see the good things that are happening around us and join it, no matter who it comes from. I heard this this week and I loved it. Uh, I heard a guy say, common grace is the idea that every single human being is able to create good culture, right? That's what we believe as Christians. We believe that every single human being is made in the image of a good God, of a creating God. And so therefore... Every single human being has the ability to create good culture. They are mandated by God to create uh, good culture. We talk about this all the time around here, the cultural mandate. Good things, they don't just come out of the church or have to touch the church. Good things happen all over the world. And sometimes we're so busy trying to figure out if a person is bad to even notice the good that they're doing. There are good things happening all over the world. And, and part of being salt and light is learning how to have eyes to see them and the courage to join them and the wisdom to know that we have been empowered to enter every single place that we go as salt and as light. Not in an arrogant, I know how to fix you kind of way, but like as a servant, protecting, infiltrating with the good stuff. There was a saying during the Roman rule um, uh, in Jesus' day, and the saying was this, there's nothing more useful than sun and salt. I think I've seen that at a beach house once, too. It's a good saying. There's nothing more useful than sun and salt. Jesus is preaching this. He's telling a group of early Christians and us today, there's nothing more useful or necessary than you knowing who you are in me and who I'm setting you free to become. In plenty of ways, Jesus is preaching dignity. This is how he sees us. Not as people have to earn our way into favor with him, but people, he's, it's dignity. It's, it's saying, because you're, 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 I made you, so you're useful, and you're necessary, and you're valued, and you're empowered, and you're favored. As if we're truly able to make a difference in the world around us. Okay, one last thing. The band can go ahead and come up. Um, at the end of what Dottie read to us today, the, the last chunk of verses, I don't have time to say much about it, but I'll say this. Um, Jesus says uh, he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So I just want to touch on that. Um, what he's saying is uh, doing these things um, and the things that we'll talk about in the coming weeks as we uh, jump through this sermon. Um, doing these things, living out this moral ethic that Jesus is talking about. Um, what he means by uh, not abolishing the law, but fulfilling the law is that it means that these things do not have the ability to save us. He's saying that because of the cross, the things that we do do not have salvific power. They don't have rescuing power. They don't earn us favor with God. We don't try to be salt or try to be light in order to, in order to earn favor with God. We are salt and light because we believe through the cross of Jesus that we are the favored of God. That he has empowered us just because we are and because he loves us. These aren't how we earn favor. These are our way of living out the kingdom of God in this world. So uh, remember, Jesus doesn't say, go be salt, go be light. He says, you are salt, you are light. Because I have done the work of rescuing you, you are free to become who I made you to be, who I always longed for you to be. 
Um, we're going to take a few minutes and be quiet. We do this every week here at the Vineyard. We call it Selah. I hope the joke isn't getting old that we did not steal it from Kanye. We did steal it from King David. So we're going to Selah. Um, it'll, so we'll just be quiet for a minute. When do you ever get to be quiet? It's a good thing. Uh, there'll be verses on the screen. If you want to follow along, you can. Um, basically, Selah just means don't move on too quickly from here. Don't move on too quickly from this moment. So um, I'm going to pray. God, we invite you to come. We believe you're here. We ask to feel your nearness. I pray that in these minutes you will um, stir us with creativity. Will you give us eyes to see um, what it looks like to be called salt and what it looks like to be called light in our everyday lives. We give us crea creative eyes to see our neighborhoods, our communities, the places that we um, spend our days, how um, we give us the eyes to see the good things that are happening there, things that we can rally behind and join behind. Uh, I pray that you that you help us um, fight the urge to do something or be something in order to be favored by you and will will you send your spirit to remind us that you just love us that you aren't moody and you are not capricious that you know no season of change that when you look at us no matter what your stance toward us is single and it is relentless you love us you love us spend these minutes reminding us of that. In your name we pray. Amen.